For those of you who are new, uh, but just to bring us up to date for those who have been here, we are in the, uh, the 12th week of a series where we began 12 weeks ago uh, talking about how God has a plan, and, and that plan is revealed through his word. And so we began the process of reviewing God's word from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, now, it's a huge task. It's a task that's bigger than probably we could possibly do. Uh, and I've never attempted this before until we res- discovered a resource that Zondervan put together, which is a Christian book publisher a few years ago, uh, called The Story. And for those of you, a lot of you have seen this, a lot of you have a copy of this, you may have an electronic copy of this, but The Story is a chronological, uh, abridged, condensed Bible that, in a sense, what it does, it takes all of Scripture, and even though Scripture is some in some part, ways chronological it's not totally many times scripture is uh, grouped according to uh, theme topic things like that and so what it does it takes the bible and it places it into 31 chapters and then basically what the story is is about 75 percent of the bible uh, just scripture with actually uh, and without any chapter references any things it puts them into chapters and then it has some transitional statements to help us to see how it goes and so we've been reading through that and so we started the chapter one of the story we're in chapter 13 today let next week we'll get to chapter 14 and then we'll take a three-week break during the christmas holidays and we'll come back in uh, january to follow that up so uh if you're new uh we encourage you it's never too late to jump in the middle of this whatever uh we have the good thing about the story as well that's really great for for those of us who teach and also those who lead small groups and other things is we have an abundance of resources that go along with it um i'll have a small group that i'll lead on saturday mornings a group of guys that we meet at 6 30 a.m here at the church and uh, it's one of my highlights of the week and yesterday morning as we met we saw the uh the video which randy frazee uh, every week does a great job of uh, in 10 minutes kind of giving us a highlight and overviewing things and uh, Randy Frazee is one of the teaching or lead pastors at uh, uh, Oak Hills Church in San Antonio, Texas, along with Max Licato. And uh, he uh, does a great job. And yesterday was, once again, a challenging uh, part to that. Um, but uh, Randy gives us uh, resources there. I, I can actually have resources that actually listen each week after I've read the story myself, studied the scripture, looked through it, put together things. Uh, some other resources I have is, is, is the, the messages that Randy has taught, uh, or Man, Randy or Max Licato has taught at, uh, at, at uh, Oak Hills. Also, some other pastors, uh, one of the church that I found really, really helpful for me personally has been Southeast Christian Church, uh, and their teaching pastors, Dave Stone and Kyle Eidelman. And uh, they become somebody that's really helped me a lot. The biggest challenge, though, is not, is, is, is not material. Uh, the m- biggest challenge is how to narrow the focus. Because if you've read this week's story, uh, the chapter 13, you know it's about the life of Solomon. Now, how in the world in 30 minutes am I going to, and I'll probably be maybe 35 minutes today, um, how, many, how many times can you possibly cover uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon in 30 minutes? And what do you do to do that? So that's always the challenge every week. And so this week was no different, but in a sense, it kind of like I saw it very clearly, uh, pretty quickly. But how to say it in a way, because it raises some challenging issues in our culture today uh, and some things that we're going to talk about. And I hope that I could talk about it in a way that will be encouraging, but also straightforward in regard to what Scripture has to say. But before we do that, let's uh, let's turn to the Lord in prayer and seek his guidance for our time today in his word. God, we thank you this morning for this opportunity. Now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, it's only, what, how many weeks to Christmas now? <clears throat> Three, four, something like that. Less than four weeks to Christmas. About four weeks to Christmas now. And uh, 
One of the things I do, I have to, Christmas for us is always a challenge because we, all our families on the East Coast, uh, Salem, Virginia, Runnick, Virginia, that area, I don't know if you know where that's at, but it's about a 12 hour drive from here. And so every year, one of the things we do is we always debate whether to fly or whether to, whether to drive. And it, it's dependent for us upon one issue, how much does it cost? And for this, some reason this year, I, I got online and was doing cost and I always did a kayak and all those sites you probably that you do as well. And, and I also this every year I do a Google search to say, is there any new sites that give me like even cheaper discounts, you know, on tickets, which they don't ever. And, uh, but I, I was doing a Google search and one of the interesting things that came up, you know, you put in, you know, flights and stuff is you get all kind of unwanted things that you really don't want to deal with. And one of the things that came up in the Google search about three or four or five weeks ago when I was doing this was all these stories about flight crashes, you know, and I was going like, that was encouraging, you know, thinking about flying and all the crashes. And they kept talking about, and it was articles from the newspaper and different things, you know, that you had in there. And one of the things, and you've probably seen this before too, anytime there's a crash, they always have this part of the story where they're always trying to find the black box, you know, the black box. And I'm going like, okay, what's the black box? Well, it's called a flight recorder, but you know that the black box is never black. It used to be black, but the black box is actually painted orange. Uh, so if, if the plane crashes, that they can find it among the rubble because it stands out, you know. And so it's a black box. But I also had this, you, know, you ever had a, started with something like that and you start having weird thoughts? Maybe you're not like me, but I'll just tell you the weird thoughts I had after that. I'm going like, okay, if the black box always survives the crash, what is it made of? And why don't they make the whole plane out of the black box? You know? And then I started thinking, well, okay, if maybe it has to do with location. Where is the black box located? And I come to find out that in most planes it's located in the tail section. So if you think you're, you're better off in first class, really the cheap seats at the back, closer to the black box, may be the best seats to survive a crash, just in case you think that way. But uh, I told you, you know, when you're on drugs and stuff, or, you know, it, it, it causes you all kind of strange thoughts, and that's, that was my tr- reasoning this past. I just want to share that with you. Uh, <clears throat> it does have a point, though, okay? It does have a point because the purpose of the black box, I understand, the flight recorder, is so that they can know what happened, what went wrong with the flight, and it records all the data from the cockpit, and it, what went wrong, and also what they can learn from it so they won't do the same thing again, okay? That's generally kind of a layman's description of why we have black boxes which are painted orange in airplanes. And, and the thing we've been going through as we've looked at Scripture for the last several weeks is that we have seen these stories, these, uh, we've kind of unveiled and opened up these boxes uh, of information about different people and about how God has encountered them. And we've learned things from them about what went right, what went wrong, and hopefully we've learned some things about what not to do. Because today we're going to be talking about what we call, what the Bible calls the wisest man that ever lived. Uh, God had incredible wisdom. But one of the things I've heard about wisdom is this, it's better to learn from someone else's mistakes than to learn from your own. It's a lot less painful. And so hopefully as we've gone through scripture, what we've done is we've opened the black boxes of different people. We have began to see some things about their lives. And today we're going to open another one. And one of that is the person named Solomon. Solomon was the son of King David. And Bathsheba, you remember that story we talked about? And uh, Chris talked about it, actually. And the thing is, is uh, uh, he followed, and Solomon followed David as the next king of Israel. And we read his story mostly in First Kings. But also we read about Solomon, and uh, we have a journal of his almost in, in a book called Ecclesiastes. And also uh, the book of Proverbs is, we believe, written by Solomon as well. 
And there we learn a whole lot of things about Solomon. And one of the things we learn about Solomon is even though he was a very wise man, he chased the wrong things. He pursued the wrong things. He pursued pleasure and, and happiness as his ultimate goal of life. He would sound like any American. You know, isn't there a purpose in life to ha- be happy? Um, that's what we think so often is that's the main purpose in life. But the issue is, is more than that is that he, he, ha- he had issues. Now today I can't talk about all the things he did. But I want to narrow it down to one area of life that was very clear and, and apply it to where we are today in life. And that is the area of how he, he dealt with one particular area. I think the area he probably just totally messed up on the most, even though he was incredibly wise, supposedly. I, I still question that. Because if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. And in verses 1, it's, uh, 1 it says this. It says, King Solomon, however, what happened is, right before this, David had, and, and everyone had said to him, if you will follow God's teaching all your life, you will, you, the, the line of David will continue on forever as far as in, in the kingdom. We'll, you'll have, uh, God will be with you. This is what will happen. That it says in first, uh, in first Kings 11. However, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He had a wife already, Pharaoh's daughter. He loved Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites, basically the known world at that time. And it says, they were, there were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. And then he says this, nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Man, he loved everybody, you know? He said, one woman is not enough, he said. So it says this, he had 700 wives of royal birth. I could have told him. That that was going to lead to problems. Couldn't you have told him, guys, couldn't you have told him that that was going to lead to problems? I mean, it's difficult it is to have a great relationship, but I have a great relationship with one woman. How do you do it with 700 plus 300 concubines, whatever they are? We're not even going into that today. He had this just multitudes of wives. And so he had that, and it says his wives led him astray. And as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his, uh, David his father had been. The main thing I want to focus on today is this, is that David, the problem, one of the big problems that we can learn from, the problem is that David rejected God's plan for marriage. God does have a plan for marriage, and he had a plan for marriage. He laid out in marriage way before Solomon. So often we have this tendency that we think that we know better than God. And Solomon, just because he had a lot of wisdom, a lot of intelligence, he had this, this tendency like, and, and I, women, I don't know if you're as bad at this as guys. I was kind of pick on guys for a minute. But we have this tendency to think we don't have to follow directions, do we? I mean, Christmas is coming up again. I'll just talk about Christmas again. You know, I was a, I, I've been a father for a long time, you know. Now I've got grandkids, you know. And the thing is, <laughs> is, I can remember so many Christmases. Christmas morning comes along and there's this present and it has those, those three horrible words on it. Some assembly required. You know what I'm talking about? And you know, as guys, we kind of look at it and we're going like, okay, we open it up and look, I'm a guy, I got skills. I can do it. Who needs directions? Some of you are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. Hours later. Maybe days later, you still got, you got something partially together and, and, you know, and you're going like, and we think this even though we have no background or training in it. I'm sorry guys, just cause you're an engineer at CAD doesn't mean you can put together a kid's toy. 
See, at some point so often that we think we know better and it may not hurt us too bad to think we know better than a manufacturer of a kid's toy. But when we think that we know better than God and we go off track with that, at some point we there will be consequences. And we know that. Do we not? We understand that clearly. So what were the consequences? What were the problems? Where was, where was Solomon getting off track with marriage? Well, there's two things I saw in here that stood out. First of all, it says that Solomon married women from other countries. Now, it wasn't an ethnicity problem. It wasn't that kind of a problem. The problem was an idolatry problem. The problem was that these wives, it said, served and followed other gods. And when it names these different people from different countries, for instance, it said that he married a Moabite woman. The Moabites worshipped the god of Samash. And one part of the, uh, the, the worship of the god of Samash was, was a child sacrifice. I don't think that that was part of Solomon's upbringing. And then, and then it was another was the Philistines and the Sidonians worshipped Ashereth. And Ashereth had temple prostitutes. It was very different than Solomon's faith. And then Solomon's God, then Solomon's God. And eventually it says his wives turned, turned his heart toward their gods. For years I have taught, when I was a youth pastor many, many years ago, back in my first ministry position, for about eight years I was a student pastor, and I talked to students all the time about this, and I talked to adults about it as well. The Bible tells us that, that the danger of, of, of being, what it says, unequally yoked, the uses the term. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, it says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what, it, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what, can fellowship, or what fellowship can have light with darkness? It's talking about when you, when you get together with somebody who has different values, so often, you know, I, I remember back in, back in college, I went to a Christian college, Carson Newman, which is in Tennessee. And, um, yeah, we talk funny there, too. You know, bright night and stuff like that. Um, the thing is, um, in college, uh, we called it missionary dating. You know what missionary dating is? Anybody know what missionary dating is? You don't have a clue? Missionary dating is you're a Christian, and what you do, you've been called to go out and reach the lost. And one of the ways you do that is by dating the, dating the lost. You know, dating people that don't have the same values. So, you know, your goal is to bring them to Christ. You know? Well, I'm telling you this, there's a problem with that because there's a problem called it. I used to, I remember this, I'll never forget it. I thought about doing this this morning, but I'm going like, eh. There's, there's a law called the law of the downward pull. And I remember at a youth conference one time, a guy got up on stage. This guy was a big old burly guy, was an ex-football player. And he got up on stage and he stood up on a chair and he leaned over and he got this little girl who was about half his size to come up to him. And he says, okay, I'm going to teach you about the law of the downward pull. And he says, I'm going to try to pull her up. And he could barely get, because leaning over, he could, it's really hard to do much. It's kind of like hard. But that little girl pulled him right off the chair. I mean, it was no problem at all. It's because of the leverage that was there. And the leverage, generally, what's going to happen in a relationship where there's a person who's a believer and a non-believer, we always say, well, you know, I hope that person, I love that person so much, and I want them to come to Christ, and, and that kind of deal. The issue is, normally, what's going to happen is the person is going to pull you in the other direction. That's what Solomon's wives did for him. We've got to be careful with, with that. And it applies in our life today as well. Another way that Solomon rejected God's plan for marriage is obvious. What is that? Polygamy, you know, <laughs> because what is God's plan for marriage? Where is it located? The first time in scripture, Genesis chapter two, verse 24. 
It says this, this, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. It says that God's plan for marriage, and it says, uh, is united. The word united means bonded together, glued together in such a way that it doesn't mean that you can have anything else around. You can't, it's not, it eliminates the whole thing of polygamy. One man, one woman, united together and one flesh. God created and instituted marriage at the very beginning of creation. And so what Solomon does is he goes against that. Obviously, I mean, big time. I mean, if he's going to do it, let's just go ahead and, you know, sin greatly. And he did. And if you've read the New, uh, the Old Testament, it would seem from time to time, because there's so many stories of polygamy in the Old Testament, it would seem to almost that God had kind of accepted it. Have you ever thought about that? I've had people say that to me. And, and sometimes you look at it and you're thinking about it. But the thing is, as often as if we have looked at these stories, they, what they repeatedly tell us every time in the Old Testament when there's this kind of relationship is it doesn't work. There, it, it, from the beginning of time, Genesis 2 says one man, one woman. But all the examples we see are when God's plan is violated, it causes heartache and problems. Robert Alter, who is uh, the writer of a book called The Art of the Biblical Narrative, he points out that even though we see all kinds of examples of polygamy in the Old Testament, it always wreaked havoc in, havoc in the families and the relationships. <clears throat> and it was an absolute disaster socially, physically, spiritually, in whatever ways you could see it. It's not necessarily there because God accepted. He just, you know, it's an example of what really happened. But that was not part of God's plan because when we get to the New Testament, we began to see God a more clear and explicit understanding of what marriage was supposed to be. One man, one woman, united as one. And when Solomon goes outside the boundaries of what God says, what does it do? It causes him all kinds of problems. Because he puts his hope in, it, in, it, in his own understandings and his own feelings. I'm sure he said, well, I love life number 273. I really do. Just as much as I love, you know, 137, you know, whatever, you know. I'm going like, wow, man, I don't know how that works. So fine. Uh, most of us go like, okay, yeah, polygamy, I have no problem with that. Okay, get ready for everything else. Everything else is applicable for today, okay? That's yesterday. You know, most of us don't have, anybody here? No, don't raise your hands. <laughs> None of us have problems with polygamy hardly today. You know, you might have a few Mormons out there somewhere and and, uh, generally that might do that. But generally in the United States, we don't have an issue with that. So what what does it relate to? What does it mean for us today? Because going back to the the main thing, the main thing is this. When we uh, disobey God's plan for marriage, one man, one woman, together, it wreaks havoc. What does it mean for us? Let me give you a couple of examples and I want to say this, and this is the part that I really needed some help in because this is a hard part to talk about. Not because of what you think, and I'll tell you why in a moment, but because of what uh, sometimes we get thrown in with. In today's society, I believe that there's one, I, I see two areas where we hugely violate God's plan for marriage. The first is premarital cohabitation, living together. Um, I can't see it in Scripture anywhere. And, and I will tell you that uh, we need to use God's Word and not current culture as the guideline. Because since 1970, let me just, I'll be honest with you, 1970, 
a, the, 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 level, the amount of cohabitation has gone up 700%. Hugely. Um, and, and so we see lots of couples living together outside of marriage. And in talking to couples, and, and I, you know, the thing is, folks, I love every, I try to love every, we're supposed to love everyone. This is not bashing certain groups today, okay? I'm going to bash all of us before we're over, so if you feel uncomfortable, just deal with it, okay? But the issue is, in talking to couples who co- cohabitate, I find, and this is true, I found this to be true, that in their minds, many of them, if they've talked to me, say, I have a real co- a desire for commitment. And the reason they rationalize that I, that I don't want to, that I do this, that I want to, Try it out first is because I've been through or seen families been through divorce and seen the, the devastation of it. And so maybe, you know, I think it might be better for me if we try this out first to make sure it's going to be real. I've heard that dozens of times. And that seems reasonable and practical, right? I mean, it really does. You know, I don't go over to uftering and i just look at the people out here you know and say hey I, I you know i want that car but i don't try it out well it's not exactly that way with, with marriage according to god's plan because when you look at the evidence and you look at the evidence of it, it it reinforces that god knows best in this area of our lives i love proverbs fourteen twelve that says this there is a way that's that appears to be right but in, in the end it leads to death there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. I maybe change that a little. There's a, a way that seems right to couples, but in the end it leads to divorce. Okay? Because let me tell you what the, the studies show. Even though we have this rationalization that, that this would lead to stronger marriages, the University of Wisconsin, which is lots of studies out there, okay, tons. I had to dwell through about, I read 30 studies this, this past week. Not the whole thing, but parts of them. And the University of Wisconsin did a secular study, and this is what the study says. It says, those who cohabitate before getting married have a 75% divorce rate. And only 15% of those who cohabitate now will be married 10 years from now. I mean, a lot of them don't get married, and a lot of them who get married don't stay married. That's opposed to around a 50% divorce rate for people who don't cohabitate before marriage. So this, the statistics don't, don't work in that rationalization and the issue in the marriage, you know, the Bible really never talks about this living together. It does talk about sexual sin, though. It says this in Hebrews thirteen four in the message. It says, honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between husband and wife. And today I just want to be honest with you because the issue is, is that so often we're afraid to talk about things like this. But I say this in love because I wish somebody, you know, I've had people come to me before and said, wish somebody would tell me what the Bible really says about this instead of beating around the bush. And then I think about what the Bible says for me and for anybody who is a leader of the church. It says in Ezekiel 33, 6, it says, But if the watchman sees the enemy coming and doesn't sound the alarm to warn the person, he is responsible for their captivity. Folks, if we know better and we don't warn folks and say, Hey, I mean, we still love them. But we don't say, Hey, you know, this is going to lead to destruction in your life. If you see your friend falling off a cliff, you go and pull him off the side of the cliff, right? So that's, that's one area I see it. But another area where I see marriage being attacked, and, and, and this is obvious, it's so obvious right now, is, is where we see God's definition of marriage being attack, under attack is the area of same-sex marriage. You know, while many in our government support 
uh, support, have support for same-sex marriage. The challenge is this, as we, as people, do not own the copyright on what marriage is supposed to be. God does. I mean, it would make sense if we decided as people what marriage, if we defined what marriage was to be from day one, and we created marriage. But we didn't create it to start with. God did. He came up with the idea. And so God came up with the idea and he defines it and he defines it at the beginning in chapter two of Genesis. But he also talks about throughout scripture, certain things that violate it as well. And so when I look at passages like first Corinthians six and Romans one, where it talks about homosexuality as a sin, I cannot stop from saying, OK, this is God's plan. It's clear. And so today, you know, we're quiet here. <laughs> wonder why. Let me tell you a conversation I had with a bunch of other pastors a few months ago. It, it, was, it was such an enlightening conversation. Sometimes we sit around and talk about all kinds of junk, you know, football and stuff like that. But sometimes we talk about real stuff. And I was at a pastor, pastor's conference, and we were talking about some of these issues like, like this, like cohabitation and like same-sex marriage. And we listed a whole bunch of issues. And we said, why is it so hard for the church to talk about issues like these things? And we began to listen and talk about why it is. And it's not what we thought when we first started, because as we talked through the, the whole conversation, it was not the reasons we might think. It was not because it's political. These issues were biblical long before they were political. And it's not because it, they might be offensive to some, because you know something? Anytime I speak and read the gospel, it is offensive. Because anytime we look at the gospel, it is God's plan for our lives. And when I look at the gospel, I'm offended every week. Because it points out where I fall short from God's plan. How to trust him and all those different things. And so the gospel is an offensive, uh, is offensive. So it's not about being offensive in a real sense. Because it always calls, the gospel always calls me to repentance in some area of my life. It may not be either one of these. It may be someplace else. It's kind of like I heard, I read recently about a UPS guy that went to deliver a package and the door is kind of a long, long skinny package. It was in a box and, he, and this person, you know, goes and rings the doorbell and the person comes out and grabs it and is all excited and grabs the package and starts ripping it open right in front of the UPS guy. Usually they're ready to take off. He must not have been too busy that day or something i can't believe a ups got not busy but anyway you know he was doing this and he rips it off and he pulls it out and it's a baseball bat but it's not the right baseball bat he ordered and the guy just goes off the this just goes nuts and he starts yelling and screaming at the ups guy going like how could you deliver this to me it's the wrong thing and he grabs the bat and starts beating the ups guy with it and i'm going like the UPS guy, you know, finally gets away, calls police, of course. And he's going like, hey, man, I'm just a delivery guy. I'm not the one that sent the package. Sometimes I feel like the delivery. I'm the UPS guy. And all I'm doing is sharing with you what God's truth is. So don't beat me up for it, okay? But the problem is so often, the real, you know what the real reason is why it's hard to talk about these things? And I said, to be honest with you, and with those, when I was with other pastors, why none of these are reasons why. The reason why it's so hard to talk about these things is because we live in a world where it's so easy to, to, to see and connect with and people hear stuff from judgmental, hate-filled, angry hypocrites. Did any of you see in May on YouTube... 
the tirade that this North Carolina pastor did against gays and lesbians? I don't know if you saw that or not. I was devastated. This guy who calls himself a pastor, and it was, went viral on YouTube. It didn't take much to go viral on YouTube, you know. You know, squirrels dancing. You know, I mean, it could be anything, you know. But this was, this was a, a service that obviously in our world today where everybody can have their little cell phone, could be videotaping it at any time, you know, and, and th- throw it on YouTube. This is what happened, and it went viral. And basically what he said was this, and I, I, want you, I don't even encourage you to go see it because it's sickening. Because this pastor in North Carolina, basically what he said was this. He said that all gays and lesbians should be rounded up, put behind an electric fence until they die out. It was the worst tirade. And this was supposedly a Christian. And when I hear that, and then I read some, you know, after that, they always have it. They have little comments on it. And I was reading some of those comments. And one of them was, you should never listen to a pastor because they're all hypocrites about family issues. And I'm going like, that's the reason it's so hard in our culture to speak truth. And do it in a loving way because we have so many people out there that think that they connect us with that kind of crazy person. I want to let you know something. I am not on that guy's team. And neither is this church. But so often we're all put together. And because of that, anytime somebody talks the truth about anything in life and does it even in a loving way, what happens is we're all branded as bigots and hypocrites. And this morning, if you're here and you've been on the receiving end of some kind of condemnation like that from some selfish, angry, prideful person like that North Carolina pastor, and there's people everywhere like that, I sat, sadly up, who call themselves Christians. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. That does not represent this church. It does not represent our Savior. And it makes it hard to talk about this. Another reason it's hard to talk about things like this is because we don't always follow God's direction for marriage all that well ourselves, do we? I wish we did. I mean, it just doesn't come off right when we're not being the kind of husband who loves his wife like Christ loved the church or the kind of wife who honors her husband and when we are following his, and, and when we're trying to tell others how to do things and point things out to people and we don't do very well ourselves. See, the problem is this is so often, it's kind of like this, it's going back to the directions thing. <laughs> My wife went to a yard sale not long ago, uh, a few months ago, and uh, she picked up a bunch of toys for our grandkids. And she picked up this big bag, she had this big bag that somebody put in this big bag of, uh, it was like train track stuff, and it was all these different levels of stuff, and little trains, so were supposed to be for preschoolers, okay? I'll just tell you that up front before you think I'm totally stupid. Um... And it didn't have any directions in it, though, you know? And so she brings it home, and Cooper and Levi are at our house on Fridays, and they wanted me to put it together. And so have you ever tried to put together something complicated, whether it's a three-year-old and a one-year-old trying to help you? And, uh, and so I didn't have a picture. I didn't have anything. And so finally, and, and let me tell you, this thing is where you can actually click parts together, and you can click it together in all kind of configurations, but I found that only one configuration works. After an hour. It only had like 30 parts. You know, I'm going like, how stupid am I? You know? And after I put it together, I'm thinking, man, I'll never get this thing, you know, back together again. So I better just leave it together. But eventually, you know, with a one-year-old and a three-year-old, it came apart. 
And we put it back in the bag. And the next time I was getting ready to put it out, I'm going like, oh my gosh, another hour. But my wife was so smart. Gosh, she's smart. She took a picture of it, what it was all together. And so in her bag, I found this photograph. It's a digital photo of the thing. And I'm going like, oh, wow, man, that's so cool. I can put it together like that because I can see it. It's, it's kind of like what we do in church sometimes. We give people all kind of directions and we tell them that marriage is to be this way, but we don't really give them the picture of what marriage is. One of the things that I would pray that we would be as a church is that we would have marriages. We would be full of marriages and families that create a picture of what it's like to, to follow God's plan. And, it, and if we do it, it'll change how people listen. You see, it seemed that Solomon justified his disobedience and his sin under the umbrella of, I'm sure God wants to make me happy and this will make me happy. But at the end of Ecclesiastes, we see after he tried everything, I mean, he tried everything. This was his conclusion in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Now all has been heard. And here is the conclusion of the matter. After I've tried everything else, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. That's what the wisest guy said after he messed up and tried everything else. He comes back to what he had learned from his daddy. Who he hadn't listened to. I just want to say this as we close this morning. If you've been ignoring God's directions in any area of your marriage, the first step God says toward changing that is to repent. Chris talked about this last week. But it's so clear because we always say that there's a, we talk about helping people take their next step towards God. Let me share what their next step can be in any of the areas that we can mess up in. For, for instance, let me, husbands, listen about this. If you've been passive in your, your marriage, you've not been the spiritual leader because God calls you to be the spiritual leader of your marriage. And you've not been sacrificially loving your wife. The Bible says we're to love our wives like Christ loved the church. If you've not been doing that, you know what you need to do? You need to repent. Say, God, I'm sorry. I'm going to turn away. I'm going to do it differently. No more this way. Wives, if you've not been encouragers in your homes, if you're negative, if you've been talking, instead of talking to your husband, you've been talking about your husband with other women, you need to repent of your sin because that is not what God calls you to do. If you're a couple who are living together outside of marriage, I know it's inconvenient to change things. But you need to repent of your sin. Do what God is asking. And if you're struggling with same-sex attraction, you've been acting out of that, you can repent of your sin. And if your marriage, your family is not being built on God's word uh, and, you're, and you're not using his word as your directions or your blueprint, we need to repent of our sin. That's what he calls us to do. Say from here on out, God, I'm going to commit to doing what things your way. And when you repent, let me tell you what God does. God gives you grace. It says, I love this verse, 1 John 1, 9, one of the very ver- best verses in all of scripture. I know it's all inspired, but some verses are just better. And this is one of them. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just 
and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God's saying, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, hey, turn away from it. Turn to me. Go forward. God does it for us. There's so much freedom in repentance. You know, we've had all these stories in the Old Testament, and so often we think they're there to teach us about what not to do. But that's not the primary purpose, I believe, these stories. The primary purpose I see of these stories is to point that every person has the need of a Savior. That all of us are sinners. That not one of us is more deserving than another. And there's not one sin that's more serious than another. That we all are sinners in need of a Savior. And so what we all need to do, according to God's Word, is to say to God, God, I want to follow your directions. And if there's a part of my life where I've not aligned myself with your will, I repent and ask you for forgiveness. And I commit myself to following you from here on out. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.